Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states. We are controlling transmission. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, conspiracies and cover-ups. And to the paranormal we go. Believers, skeptics, those of you in between, welcome one, welcome all to the program. A show that prefers to venture somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal to a place where mysteries await. And we appreciate you going on that journey with us nightly. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Tonight's mystery, in which we're going to discuss, has existed for many decades. We're talking about tales of Bigfoot sighting Sasquatch, if you prefer, abominable snowman, Yeti. Tales of uh, these sightings, which we're going to refer to for the most part tonight, is either Sasquatch or Bigfoot, have been passed down from generation to generation. But as it stands, much is still to be learned about this phenomenon. In fact, this weekend, we welcome you to join us in Baker City, Oregon, for the Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest to learn with us more about this phenomenon. But tonight, we're going to get the Bigfoot party started with a conversation that we hope will challenge our assumptions and deepen our understanding of this mystery. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program Matt Pruitt, who has dedicated nearly two decades to investigating the Sasquatch phenomenon. He has gained extensive knowledge of the topic through a combination of conceptual analysis and practical fieldwork. This year, he published The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the National 
Natural Origins of a Cultural Icon, which is a book that demonstrates his dedication to unraveling the truth behind this intriguing mystery. Matt is a member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy and the producer and editor of the podcast Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Boba, which we fully encourage you to download wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to Into the Paranormal as well. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure to do so. So what about the Bigfoot and Sasquatch phenomenon really fascinates you? Well, how much time do we have? We could fill up the entire two hours with that, I think. But, you know, I guess to really get to the core of it, I mean, there's a a whole number of paradoxes involved with this particular mystery in that you have, you know, something that's very pervasive. It's got a long history. It's very prolific. It's seemingly ubiquitous across this continent. You've got, you know, a huge collection of witnesses that have put together a massive corpus of stories, of narrative testimonies, of claims, of observations and encounters with these things. You know, a large collection of evidence that's touted as being associated or attributed to these things. And yet we have, you know, as a society, we have not yet recognized that these purported animals exist or none of our institutions recognize that, you know, academia, uh, scientific institutions, the government, etc., And so that's all the makings of a very good mystery is that, you know, clearly people are seeing something or they're at least, you could say, experiencing something. And so you could say that those claims and that evidence collectively form what we could call the Sasquatch phenomenon, even though it is, you know, a series of different phenomena, but we could house them under that single rubric and say, well, the phenomenon exists because it's clearly influencing observers and you know it has some effect on the environment as suggested by the evidence so what is at the root of the phenomenon you know are there animals fitting the descriptions and the claims or you know in lieu of such a species then it would only really be the product of the human mind it's some sort of like psychological element something deep within the human psyche and so trying to answer that question has been a a very challenging task you know there's many people that have claimed like the personal discovery to the answer to that question but we haven't made, you know, as a society, let's say, a collective discovery yet. So have you had uh, a Bigfoot encounter that you know of? Well, I've had multiple experiences over the years that were consistent with, you know, Sasquatch-oriented testimonies, let's say. But I've never had a visual sighting. Although two of the encounters that I had or two of the experiences, let's say, did have a visual element. One of which was essentially a silhouette that was associated with other sounds and then uh, impressions or tracks that was in central North Carolina in May of 2007. And the other of which that had a visual element was in northwestern Arkansas in uh, early 2012. But I wouldn't call either of those sightings necessarily because they weren't very clear. They weren't in like favorable visual conditions. And so I wasn't certain what I was looking at. Uh, although with the associated sounds and other things, it's very suggestive. But, you know, I've heard vocalizations a number of times that are nearly identical to vocalizations that have been attributed to Sasquatches that have been recorded in other parts of the continent that, you know, can't be reasonably associated with other North American mammals. And you could typically rule out humans having generated those sounds in those cases. Uh, I've experienced, you know, the rock throwing or other projectile sort of throwing these loud percussive sounds that are colloquially referred to as wood knocks. You know, I found impressions. I've seen some more detailed impressions than others, but, you know, uh, here in the Southern Appalachians where I do the bulk of my research, we don't necessarily have the same kind of substrate where a lot of the 
castable impressions have been found and documented in the Pacific Northwest, where you are, for example. So I've had a number of experiences because I've pursued this very doggedly in the field for so long, but I haven't had a sighting. And so that's both uh, very maddening and frustrating, but also something to continually strive for, I suppose. Yeah, but we have heard through many who have experienced over the years that, uh, you know, it can sometimes take a lifetime because if this is a supernatural being, uh, which doesn't mean it's not flesh and blood, it could just uh, exist, uh, say, in in another dimension and then travel into our dimension. Uh, If one were to have an encounter, um, you know, those individuals might consider them lucky because not everybody is allowed to get that close. Well, I certainly don't think that they're supernatural in in the typical sense of the word. I mean, I guess that would depend on one's definition of supernatural. But in terms of like the metaphysical, uh, yeah, I, I don't subscribe to any sort of uh, literal interpretation of metaphysical beliefs or the metaphysical abilities that have been attributed to them. But they certainly have accumulated those sort of beliefs over the years, as have other mammals, typically mammals that are very large. Uh, very rare, and often animals that are very frightening or intimidating. And so there is a bit in the book uh, where I sort of compare a lot of the supernatural attributes that are associated with animals like bears, tigers, and even gorillas, and how analogous those are to the supernatural attributes associated with the Sasquatch. Uh, so I can understand you know, what it is about the human mind, or let's say the human interpretive schema that leads people to believe that these things are supernatural because supernatural thinking, or you could say mystical or magical thinking tends to be the normative way that humans interpret the natural world. It's the normative way of of human thinking. It's been occurring cross-culturally for as long as we've been a species and who knows how long, you know, prior to that in our ancestors, let's say in our lineage. And so of course you would expect that even if these are perfectly normal animals, given those criteria, you know, large size, rarity, Uh, frightening or intimidating characteristics or behaviors, that they should accumulate such supernatural attributes in the belief systems or in the interpretive schemata of various peoples. And that's exactly what occurred. And so that's why I illustrate that in the book is to say, well, if they are real, we should expect that people would hold these beliefs about them. And it just so happens that we should expect these specific beliefs because they're also associated with these other animals. And that's what we do see there. And so You know, animals that are very rare, for example, are encountered very rarely. And animals that are very large and rare typically have very large home ranges, and they tend to be very mobile in those home ranges. So you could imagine, you know, a great analogy would be the Siberian tiger. Uh, You know, a Siberian tiger male might have a home range around 1,500 square kilometers. And they're constantly on the move because they're, you know, obligate carnivores and They have to cover a lot of territory in order to survive, to gain resources, i.e. hunt. And so, you know, if you were to have a random sort of serendipitous encounter with an animal of that nature, if you were to try to replicate that, you know, if you went back to the same place, let's say, hoping to see it again, well, the odds are that it's long gone. It's, It's on the move. It's, again, very mobile in a large range. And so you would be left with this sort of experiential or let's say phenomenological uh, experience that, well, you can't see them on demand. You only see them when you're not looking for them. And you find that sort of belief associated with animals that fit that category. 
And then another thing in the case of uh, an animal like the tiger is that they are ambush hunters. You know, their entire survival depends on being undetected. And a lot of the animals that these things hunt tend to be herd animals. So a tiger has to constantly infiltrate these sort of sensors of these herd animals. So infiltrate the senses of dozens of pairs of eyes and ears and nostrils. And evolution has dictated that over you know millennia perhaps millions of years into their ancestry. And so it's crucial to their survival to be as undetected as possible. And so for the observer, it does seem like an animal like that materializes out of thin air and then vanishes back into it. And so with the tiger, you do find these sort of uh, beliefs, not just the Siberian tiger, but in other parts of Asia that, you know, they're the mediators between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, that they can travel between those two worlds. And that's what gives them this ability to, appear and then you know vanish to to disappear into nothing when you dig into the the eyewitness testimonies of sasquatches a lot of those do involve uh, witnesses observing them or purportedly observing them ambush hunting typically it's ungulates it's deer it's elk but in other parts of the country it can be things like wild pigs etc so you can just imagine that if the same uh, behaviors are required in order for them to acquire resources they probably have some similar lifestyles or similar behaviors. And so these things, too, would appear to, you know, uh, materialize into our reality and vanish back into nothing. And they would also have that same sort of uh, you'd experience them in the same way and that most encounters are serendipitous, you know, luck. But, you know, I can tell you from interviewing hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, most of them don't consider it luck. Uh, it's usually something that they wish hadn't occurred for a number of reasons. Uh, but regardless, you'd still be left with that same experience that, well, you can't see them when you want to. You know, you can't see them on demand. So pursuing them doesn't always result in a sighting because most sightings are serendipitous. So animals that live those lifestyles, I understand why they accumulate these particular supernatural attributes within certain belief systems, even to modern times. But I don't think that they're supernatural uh, by some metaphysical definition. Well, Everything you've said would indicate that you would have to spend a lot of time outdoors if you hope to ever see one of these. Oh, and I have for a very long time. And it's funny because, you know, most of the animal encounters I've had, because uh, I've had many, many bear encounters, uh, you know, encounters with other sort of rare mammals across the continent. And most of those are serendipitous. You know, they're not necessarily on demand. And, you know, you will never have a proxy for luck, you know, right place, right time. But to your point about spending time in the right places, it's like, well, I can't always be there at the right time. But if yeah. I can find the right place and try to be there all the time, that helps some of that equation. All right, Matt, hold that thought. We're uh, going to return with Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch. Something afoot on Into the Paranormal. Into the Paranormal. Paranormal. Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. This is Into the Parabnormal. We're speaking with Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch, seeking the natural origins of a cultural icon. That being, of course, the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot, as it's known. And we were discussing about, you know, having a sighting and how rare or how lucky some might perceive it. 
Uh, and uh, Matt was talking also right before the break about uh, finding the right location. Uh, and so there are certain parts of the country and the world uh, where Bigfoot is more known to be seen than others, right? Well, certainly. I mean, there's certain regions within North America that have you know, produced more Sasquatch sightings than not. But obviously, every report requires a human observer. And so there's plenty of places that constitute viable habitat where very few people ever go. And therefore, there's no reports represented in any databases or on any maps or anything of that nature. And so some of those places might be the places to go. But again, obviously, if no one ever goes there, there's probably very good reason. And so, you know, that would be one of those bucket list things to travel to some of these really remote, far-flung places of North America and spend time. But even certainly within the lower 48, there's, you know, areas of southern Appalachia, uh, the U.S. interior highlands, the Pacific Northwest, the Rocky Mountains, et cetera, that have produced not only physical evidence, but a wealth of claims, you know, testimonies and reports. So tell us about your research and what you have focused on mainly. Well, it's been really sort of a focus on multiple aspects of the phenomenon. I mean, obviously, when I first got interested and got involved, you know, I'd had an experience when I was very young, although I never, again, hadn't seen one. And so we heard these sounds myself and four other friends. And so the first sort of layer of research that I was trying to do was to find local witnesses, to see if there were other people in that particular area of Southern Appalachia that had seen these things or heard similar sounds. And then I was also doing a bit of historical research and digging into whatever archival materials I could find. And a lot of that was essentially print media archives, newspaper archives, and was fairly shocked at that time to find, I think within the first year, I found nearly 40 reports from Northeast Georgia alone around where I grew up that predated the year 1900 in print media. And so that was fairly shocking because, you know, the notion of Sasquatch or Bigfoot felt like a a 20th century sort of notion uh, because it's something you saw mostly represented on television, you know, whether it was in search of, which was a little before my time, but by the time, you know, I was uh, old enough to try to track these things down, you could find either reruns or VHS tapes or something like that of the in search of documentaries. And then older films like The Legend of Boggy Creek or The Mysterious Monsters. And so to find older reports from the 1800s from that area uh, was pretty compelling because it just showed you, okay, well, this is not just the product of the television or the radio or the old, you know, early 20th century stories about the Yeti in Asia being somehow, you know, transferred to, uh, you know, some North American variant. It's actually, you know, it's got a longer history than that. And so that was the the initial stages of research. And so I spent a lot of time collecting local information and that sort of spread geographically as I started to explore other portions of the Southeast. And, you know, I was going in the field initially, but primarily I was just going with witnesses to the places where they claimed to have had these sightings. And then, you know, I might look for tracks or something of that nature, but it wasn't until about 2004 uh, there was a series, I don't know if you're familiar with Doug Hycheck, but he went on to produce a show called Monster Quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, he produced a documentary called Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. Um, and Doug produced a show for the Outdoor Life Network called Mysterious Encounters. It was sort of the precursor to Finding Bigfoot, albeit many years prior to Finding Bigfoot. Uh, Matt Moneymaker was on that show and uh, James Bobo Fay. So there's a few familiar faces from Finding now, Bigfoot. Hold that thought, but, but we'll pick it right up there when we come back with Matt Pruitt 
I'm Jeremy Scott into the paranormal. This is Paranormal News. An outburst from the sun was so intense that it was felt on multiple bodies in the solar system and picked up by instruments on Earth, the Moon, and Mars for the very first time. That's impressive because Earth and Mars were on opposite sides of the sun at the time, separated by 155 million miles. The detection of a coronal mass ejection in October of 2021 is helping us better understand solar activity and the potential impact on space exploration. Meanwhile, researchers have discovered the highest energy light ever detected from the sun, up to nearly 10 trillion electron volts, using a highly sophisticated telescope. It suggests that the sun's rays may be stronger than previously thought. Physicists are studying how these gamma rays achieve such high energies and what role the sun's magnetic fields may play. George Henry, Paranormal News. When I first saw her, she was standing upright. I thought, you know, this is this is unreal. It's unreal. Three friends follow a set of mystery footprints to the edge of a frozen lake, and then they see something extraordinary. We'd hear tales of it from our great grandfather. They would tell us to be careful and not get too far out. Bigfoot, Sasquatch. That's what we're discussing tonight into the paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott speaking with Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the Natural Origins of a Cultural Icon. 503-506-0396, the call-in number for anyone in the United States and Canada. That's 503-506-0396. Skype callers internationally at ITP51. If you have uh, seen Bigfoot, if you've uh, maybe uh, captured a print or some hair or some scat and you want to share your sighting experience, uh, we would love to hear it. We can get the Bigfoot Town Hall started early uh, here tonight on the program. We'll have uh, that opportunity as well for those joining us in Baker City this weekend at the Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest, and we'll tell you more about that uh, before we end our program tonight. Uh, talking with uh, Matt about collecting reports about uh, going into the field with witnesses, occasionally looking for tracks, and then something around the year 2004, uh, what, made you really start taking this seriously? Well, I was already taking it seriously and and trying to gather data. And like I said, I was in the field, but only as much as just trying to 
understand the environmental context where these things occurred and then potentially looking for tracks if it was the sort of environment where the substrate was conducive to potentially retaining tracks or if you know the claim siding or encounter was recent enough that tracks might be there to be found still but in seeing that show the way that mysterious encounters was produced was you know matt moneymaker and members of the bigfoot field researchers organization were essentially using these behavioral techniques and strategies and that they were going out into the field in these places and not just looking for sign but they were generating sounds that were sort of like emulating the sounds that sasquatches make and hoping to get either responses from sasquatches or to be approached uh, by sasquatches so it's almost like a you know using sound as bait in a way and almost a uh, a method to try to not only again make contact of some sort but to result in some sort of visual sighting that you might be able to document via camera or some other visual aid like a you know video camera or something and so seeing that was really an eye-opener like oh well i can just go into the right habitat and try these things myself and it doesn't have to always be dependent on well i need to find someone who's seen one recently in order to even begin that process and so that's when my field research really got a lot more intensified using that particular approach and then over the years you know expanding that from the southeast into other parts of the country you know i lived in the pacific northwest for three years and then lived in oklahoma for a while and you know visited all sorts of places in between some of these uh, hot spots as we discussed uh, places with viable habitat and so i continue to do so i don't necessarily interview witnesses to the same degree that i used to um, in terms of, of taking reports uh, but i still spend as much of my time in the field as i can and so i'm, I'm out quite often not only searching for sign and spore but still using that sort of behavioral approach what other uh areas do you focus on do you get into uh historical uh, accounts as well um maybe oh certainly the indigenous yeah, and, and and other cultures Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, it's a huge part of the the foundation of understanding the subject, and that is laid out in the book. And so there's an entire chapter devoted to uh, indigenous traditions and art and the ape-like creatures that are represented in those narratives and in these artistic representations. And then uh, there is a chapter about the historical record. Now, the historical record is so vast. Uh, it's probably the best resource for any of your listeners who might be interested in that particular aspect of the subject is Chad Arment's book, The Historical Bigfoot, in which he's aggregated just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of print media articles, uh, most of which predate the year 1900, uh, detailing you know observations of these things and encounters. And I think there's probably many more of those that have not been uncovered yet or mined from their repository, let's say, and associated with the Sasquatch phenomenon, because the word Sasquatch was essentially coined in, in 1929 by a, a journalist who was also a teacher uh, in British Columbia, a gentleman named J.W. Burns, who was anglicizing a couple of words, but predominantly a halcomellum word, that the pronunciation is fairly difficult. And then because it, it's a word from an oral tradition, there's no uh, you know consensus on how to spell that in the English language. So he sort of uh, anglicized that into Sasquatch. And so prior to that word, you know, there were various terms used, the nomenclature sort of all over the place from wild men to mountain devils to, you know, in the Southeast, you have a lot of booger, which is sort of a derivative of boogie, like boogeyman. So there's woolly boogers and wood boogers and on and on. But then I've seen other references that people are clearly describing some very large ape-like creature, but they call it like the what's it, 
or the nondescript. And so now that all these things are being digitized and you can search them, well, you have to search a whole variety of terms. Again, some of them are more intuitive than others, so it's easy to search wild man or something like that. But most people wouldn't think to search what's it <laughs> to find these reports. So there's probably a great many reports that were you know, circulated in print media back then that haven't been associated with the Sasquatch yet. So the historical record is very rich and it's still somewhat an untapped resource. Well, then this goes back well over 120 years. Oh, much, much farther than that. It goes back centuries. And so, you know, you can't date the indigenous oral traditions because we don't know how old those stories are. But it's, you know, it's a reasonable assumption to say that they're probably many thousands of years old. Uh, and maybe, you know, extending further back in time to uh, Asiatic peoples before they came into North America via Beringia, because animals like this did live in Asia. You know, there was a, a plate of giant Asian apes that produced two genera that we're aware of, Indopithecus and Gigantopithecus, uh, these very large, the largest apes that ever lived, especially Gigantopithecus as a genus. Um, and then today you have these contemporary or even, you know, through the historical record until today, legends of the Yeti, the Yeren, these other mystery apes in Asia. and But you can date the artistic representations. And so some of those certainly are, you know, a thousand plus years old uh, because those can be dated more you know, readily than you can date something like an oral tradition or a narrative because who knows how long that was passed down. Many different names, but it sounds like we're pretty much talking about the same thing. Oh, certainly. I mean, the, the descriptions in general describe, you know, the same sort of animal. And the only real differences that you see across, you know, whether it's cross-culturally or, uh, you know, even in modern times across different witnesses, the differences are reasonable differences that you could attribute to the age and sex of the animal. And so, you know, there are differences in size and there are differences in morphology in that, you know, females tend to be described as having very obvious mammary glands and males do not. Uh, but then you have, you know, juveniles, sub-adults, and then these very large adults. And then there's colorations of hair difference from very dark black to, you know, a dark brown to a cinnamon brown to a red to a blonde. And then occasionally people describe, you know, very large gray or near white individuals. And so, you know, people look at those differences and they often wonder whether or not these represent different species or subspecies. But I think the parsimonious or the most simple solution to, to solve for that would be that, no, this is a species of animal and you're seeing a variety based on age and the sex of the animal. Uh, much like dinosaurs, are there fossils of Bigfoot or Sasquatch? Well, there are fossils of the giant Asian ape line in Asia. And so, again, the older form was a genus called Indopithecus. And so there's fossils that come from the Sawalak Hills of India and the Potwar Plateau of Pakistan. And then the younger genus, Gigantopithecus, which we currently are only aware of one particular species, Gigantopithecus blackie, their fossils, which are in the form of jaws and teeth, uh, occur all over Southeast Asia from portions of China, Vietnam, down into Indonesia and Java. And you know the reason that we only have the teeth and jaws of these animals is that the, the bones that we do have, you know, those particular fossils, were found in these karst caves, these openings that were, a lot of it is limestone, and so it's very good at preserving bone, but these animals didn't live in these caves. In fact, many of these openings and fissures and sinkholes, they weren't even openings during the time that these apes were around. 
but accumulating agents, as uh, what they referred to in the literature, animals that dragged bones into dens to consume them, and in these parts of Asia, it was porcupines, could bring in these bones and, and consume them. And essentially, the teeth and jaws of Gigantopithecus were so very dense that they these animals just couldn't chew through them or, or wear them down. And so those are all that have survived. But we do have this ape line that existed from about 8.6 million years ago until roughly 100,000 to 80,000 years ago in the late Pleistocene, according to some recent papers. And so if that is indeed the ancestral lineage of the Sasquatch, I mean, first we'd have to demonstrate conclusively that the Sasquatch exists, but uh, many people, including myself, think that that's the most likely ancestral lineage. And so if so, then you could say, well, yes, there is some fossil precursor to the Sasquatch in North America or the Yeren of China. Well, if there were Bigfoot fossils, they would have to then be different than, say, a bear, right? Oh, certainly. You know, bears are are ursine, and from all the eyewitness descriptions and then the physical evidence in terms of tracks and things of that nature, the inferred foot morphology and handprints, things of that nature, I mean, it appears that what we're dealing with in the Sasquatch are apes. So, you know, very different animals, different orders, etc., Recently, there was some information that came out that looked at, uh, you know, through mathematics based on bear sightings uh, and then transposed on uh, top of that uh, Sasquatch sightings. And through that made the case that in many of the same areas that bear sightings happen, so do Sasquatch sightings. Um, So to explain that, maybe they prefer the same habitat if they are coexisting well it would stand to reason because you know black bears are very large omnivorous mammals and based on the descriptions of sasquatches and what people claim to have seen them eating they seem to be omnivorous so they eat a variety of flora and fauna you know plants and animals and that's not unlike gigantopithecus we know that gigantopithecus blackie was essentially uh you know we don't think that it ate meat or at least there's no direct evidence of that but of the flora that they consumed they they ate a variety a very diverse array of different foods and so you know in in north american habitat where you have one population of you know large omnivorous mammals you could support other large omnivorous mammals and so it stands to reason that you know the the habitat that would support black bears would also support another large omnivore like the Sasquatch. And so you do find those correlations in that where there are a lot of black bears, you also have these Sasquatch sightings, which of course skeptics very often use to say, well, then their conclusion might be that that Sasquatches are solely uh, misidentified black bears, that people are catching glimpses of black bears and misinterpreting it as some you know large ape-like form. But there's many places where, you know, there's an abundance of bears because it's not just restricted to black bears. You know, obviously you have brown bears, grizzly bears, et cetera. Grizzly bears are sort of interior brown bears and then brown bears more prolific on the coast. But, you know, a good example of that would be Kodiak Island that boasts the largest brown bears in all of North America and very rugged mountains and forested habitat. And it receives, you know, there's not a huge population on that island of humans, but it receives a large annual visitorship of outdoorsmen. People hunt there, people fish there. There are zero Sasquatch sightings whatsoever from Kodiak Island. And so you would think, well, if if people had the propensity to misidentify bears and interpret that they were just large apes, that there would also be this history of sightings or claims 
of observations and encounters of big apes on Kodiak Island, and yet that's not the case. Hold that thought. More to come with Matt Pruitt. I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. Into the Paranormal. Into the paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. Getting ready to head out east for the Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest this weekend and getting it started tonight with the author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the Natural Origins of a Cultural Icon. His name is Matt Pruitt. And uh, talking a little bit about misinterpretations uh, before the break, and I'll allow you the opportunity to complete your thought on that, Matt, if you had any more to say. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, I I can understand that argument and undoubtedly there are some Sasquatch claims that are the result of misidentification. I mean, there's no doubt about that. People have seen static objects like, you know, tree stumps or something of that nature that they, their mind interprets very quickly into, you know, some sort of man-like or ape-like form. And perhaps people have caught glimpses of black bears many times and assumed that it was something akin to the Sasquatch. But you know, if that were the case in all of these cases, that you would expect there to be a proliferation of Sasquatch sightings wherever bears occur, and that just doesn't seem to be the case. And especially in places like, you know, New Jersey, where the bear population has rebounded to the point where it's like exploding and they're spilling over into the suburbs. It's not like you suddenly have some flap of Sasquatch sightings within the New Jersey suburbs. And so, you know, some of the claims, you know, if someone were to say, oh, well, I saw, you know, a dark, hair-covered animal at 200 yards away at dusk through the thick brush. It's like, well, statistically speaking, it probably was not a Sasquatch. You know, it's probably more likely to be some other animal. But, you know, when you're speaking with a witness who says, well, I saw one cross the road in front of my car and I slammed on my brakes and it was fully illuminated in the headlights, unobstructed, standing 20 feet away from the front of my vehicle, and I saw it for 15 seconds, and they can describe it head to toe, and it's clearly not a bear. Either that person saw what they're claiming to have seen, or they're fabricating it. So misidentification can't cover all of the sighting. Absolutely. What kinds of physical evidence have you gotten your hands on? Well, like personally that I've collected in the field? Yeah, or or that's been handed over to you from witnesses. Well, typically, you know, tracks tend to be in the, the highest abundance. And I think also a big part of that is that's what most people who are focused on the subject are looking for. They're the, you know, the largest bits of trace evidence because, you know, hence the Noman Bigfoot, <laughs> you know, they, they tend to be fairly large, you know, from maybe 14 and a half inches in what we presume to be sort of adult female individuals and then around 18 inches in length for uh, adult male individuals. So I've seen a number of impressions that fall within that range in the field myself. I've only seen very clear examples, for example, where you could see all five of the toes very clearly, uh, a very small number of times. The, the one time in particular that was the most compelling uh, involves some tracks that were featured in the premiere episode of the series Finding Bigfoot. I worked on that episode. We filmed that outside of my hometown. Uh, so witnesses have collected photographs of those things. You know, casts are sort of rare. Most people don't have plaster or hydrocal or dental stone or something like that on hand. So I've received a number of photographs of tracks and impressions from individuals. 
Um, you know, individuals have collected hair in conjunction with sightings. Um, you know, I've collected hair samples myself that were fairly interesting, but inconclusive. You know, none of those have been DNA tested. And only now is that technology sort of becoming more accessible and more available. In fact, uh, the most recent episode of Bigfoot and Beyond that we released was with Darby Orcutt, who's heading up a project to search for, you know, anomalous samples and try to submit them to uh, genetic testing to see if there is something out there, let's say. Uh, but I have received hair samples from witnesses as well, but the majority of it would be trace evidence, footprints, handprints, and other impressions of that nature. What is it about the track structure in some of these that sets them apart from any other primate? Well, essentially, I think that most people have this idea that they're just very large human feet, and, and that's the way that they're construed. And so they're superficially human-like in the general shape and the fact that, you know, all five digits sort of, uh, you know, are in line with each other because, you know, the extant apes, the living apes, you know, uh, gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans, you know, they have a divergent large toe. And so it sticks out away from the other digits like a thumb. So their feet look very much like hands. And these are animals that still do a lot of you know, climbing, arboreal activity up in the trees. And so they've retained that ability. Now, as hominids came to the ground and became bipeds, you know, for stability and for, you know, a number of other functions, but primarily for stability, you know, that Hallux is what they call the largest digit, sort of becomes aligned over generations via evolutionary pressure. We're going to have to hold that thought into the next hour. Matt Pruitt, my guest. I'm Jeremy Scott. If you think this hour was mind-blowing, just wait until you hear what's next. Into the Paranormal. We'll be right back. of foot is it bigfoot sasquatch could be keep an eye out for it i'm talking with matt pruitt author of the phenomenal sasquatch seeking the natural origins of a cultural icon and uh, we were talking about the track structure uh, particularly uh among what are believed sasquatches that sets them apart from uh, other species and then we had to go to break so uh, let's pick that back up matt oh certainly well again so they're superficially human-like in the fact that they have that general shape and all five digits are sort of aligned uh but there's a number of differences and so you know there's ratio differences between the length and the width generally speaking so in most sasquatch tracks the width at the forefoot or let's say the ball of the foot tends to be about 40 to 50 percent of the overall length of the foot which is you know 
much uh, much wider width index than you find in humans. Probably the most distinguishing feature that people uh, might not be aware of, but you know, Dr. Jeff Meldrum has done the most research to draw attention to this. He's a, a professor right. of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. Is seemingly this midfoot flexibility. You know, so you could think of the foot as composed of these two different sort of uh, organs, let's say. So they're the propulsive organ that propels the animal forward, and then a prehensile or grasping organ. And so you can see that in the ape foot. Again, if we're talking about gorillas or chimps or orangs, in that, you know, the forefoot is essentially, you know, they have very long digits. You know, their toes are almost like fingers, and then they've got, again, that divergent hallux that can grasp trees, whereas the sort of heel portion, the rear portion of the foot is what propels the animal forward. And so in Sasquatch tracks, they're almost intermediary between the extant apes and a human foot. And then they seem to have retained that midfoot flexibility, which we also see suggested in, you know, fossilized hominin tracks from uh, Africa, uh, like the Laetoli trackway that's associated with Australopithecus. And so that's a differentiating feature in that, you know, humans have a very well-defined longitudinal arch within the foot that's you know evolved essentially for long distance running and for speed running and so you know where our foot bends essentially during those running phases is right behind the toes right at the ball of the foot whereas the sasquatch foot seems to be flexible right around the center line the midpoint of the foot which is markedly different than than a human's foot and so that's evident in a number of tracks and so there are these subtle differences that appear within the Sasquatch track record that differentiate them from humans uh, beyond just the very, very large size of, of these tracks. Again, 14 and a half inches for what are presumed to be adult females and 18 to 18 and a half inches for what are presumed to be adult males, uh, Sasquatches that is. So much larger than human feet uh, tend to be fairly flat because of the lack of the arch and show a, a high degree of midfoot flexibility. So by the descriptions that we've heard of tonight and uh, known to exist over time, it sounds like these species are hybrid, uh, perhaps a little bit of everything or a little bit of a lot of things. Well, it really depends on how you define hybrid. I mean, we're all composed of a mosaic of shared features with other things that we're related to. And so you, you might say like a hybrid of structure, but it just depends on what you're pulling from. And so... Like very often, if people observe apes at the zoo, let's say, they'll see certain behaviors that gorillas or chimpanzees exhibit, and they'll go, oh, look how human-like that is. Because, you know, we see ourselves, and so we think it's like us. And it's like, actually, no, we share those behaviors. They're not doing something that's like us, and we're not doing something that's like them because we're so closely related. We share these common behaviors. We share common features. We share similar forms. And so you could almost say, like, well, all tetrapods are structurally similar. And so each tetrapod could be like a hybrid of other tetrapods. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily think that that's probably the best way to categorize it in that, you know, once you get down to a certain level of analysis, then things are very uniquely identifiable. Uh, a good analogy would be, you know, there's a category of, let's say, big cat. But, you know, you, and you could say, well, big cats are this sort of worldwide phenomenon and people would might lump all that together but then you don't have to dig very deep to say oh well you know those are fractionated out into mountain lions and jaguars and african lions and cheetahs and tigers etc or between the bingle tiger and the siberian tiger and so you might look at one big cat and 
see features that it shares with other ones and say, oh, well, this is a hybrid of these other species, but it's not genetically a hybrid. It might possess, again, like a mosaic of shared features, but I would say the Sasquatch is not a hybrid in the sense that it doesn't seem to be like a blending or a melding of various species, although it does share these features of other known apes, both extant and extinct. So is it possible that it fits one of the classifications um, known today, or is it uh, deserving of a classification in and of its own? Well, we'd certainly have to procure remains to figure that out, whether that's just some sample from which we could derive like a full genome to see where they fit in the tree of life or whether we got a physical specimen of one that it you know, died of natural causes or if someone you know, hit one with a, a vehicle or something like that and was able to recover it. But, you know, obviously it might be something associated with the Asian ape line that we previously described, you know, something related to or descended from a genus like Gigantopithecus. You know, there are other proponents who think it's something more closely related to us, something that diverged from an African line, uh, perhaps around like the robust Australopithecines or Paranthropus or something like that. And so there are various fossil candidates that people try to associate it with, uh, you know, as sort of a hypothetical or maybe like an explanatory mechanism. But those are just questions we can't answer. Uh, you know, we, first of all, we have to prove that they even exist, uh, which has not yet been done to the satisfaction of society. And then we, we might arrive at some conclusions about what they're related to. But they're certainly not humans. They're not homo sapiens. Uh, they're not gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans, or the lesser apes like gibbons. Siamangs, et cetera. So I would say that they're probably deserving of their own category, at least uh, conceptually at this point for now. And you take a look at whether Sasquatch is an undiscovered animal or whether, what, it's uh, a product of one's imagination. Is that right? Well, and you could use imagination as a proxy for, let's say, the psyche something that you know is is perhaps a, a layer deeper or several layers deeper depending on your your view of the uh, the imagination but you know essentially like we discussed at the beginning uh, in the first hours that you know this phenomenon exists it's built upon these claims and these items that are touted or offered as evidence and then the question is okay well what is generating all of that well it seems to be that it, the claims and evidence describe essentially uh, a very large mammal species that's most, you know, has the most in common with an ape. So some species of ape, it's obviously not some kind of a novel bear or, you know, some giant squirrel or something like that. So either there are animals fitting this description, some species of ape, or if no such animal exists, well, then what else could it possibly be? It, it would have to be, you know, in lieu of such a species, just the product of the human mind or the human psyche to some degree, in that either there are things that we experience phenomenologically as authentic, uh, you know, without some empirical referent in the environment. And then, uh, you know, the evidence, let's say the trace evidence, for example, like tracks, well, if, if an animal with a foot isn't leaving those, then they had to have been fabricated by humans. So some sort of externalized, manifestation of that imaginary process or that imaginative form or or psychic process let's say you know pertaining to the psyche uh the technical term i don't mean psychic as in you know telepathy but uh as a element of the human psyche and so that's the fundamental question is that the phenomenon exists what's generating it those are the two most likely sources 
of those two, which of the two is more likely or simpler or more parsimonious than the other? And I argue that I think the biological hypothesis is the most likely one, that there really are animals that fit this description, that have feet, that are shaped like the tracks that people find, and that that's the simplest answer and therefore the most likely answer to the question of what is generating the Sasquatch phenomenon. Interesting. Uh, what about the psychological factors that are at play during an encounter? Uh, that's a fascinating aspect of this as well. It really is, and there's so much to dive into there, and I try to cover a lot of that in the book because so much of what we're looking at when we look at the Sasquatch phenomenon or the subject, the pursuit of the Sasquatch, we're looking at the representations. And, you know, I think you see the same thing in other esoteric subjects or or maybe even you know because sasquatch is often lumped in with other paranormal subjects you know so the big three being like ghosts ufos and and sasquatch let's say and so these things are novel they're very rare uh you know they're predominantly within the unknown and so what humans do when they encounter the unknown very often they project the contents of their imagination into that unknown that's sort of a a first pass approximation of trying to figure out what it is that you're dealing with. And you can see that across time with, again, beliefs associated with other animals, beliefs associated with various elements of the natural world, be it weather, you know, thunder, lightning, the, the movement of the sun, uh, the move, cycles of the moon, things of that nature, or even think about the stars. You know, people looked up at the stars for millennia and hadn't, they couldn't know what they were looking at. They didn't understand, and how could they have understood that these are, you know, flaming balls of gas, you know, many, many light years away. And what did they do? Well, they populated the night sky with gods, essentially, the contents of their imagination. They played out these sort of stories, and that's what we call, you know, astrology and, and what gave us the constellations, etc. And so you can learn a lot about the contents of the human psyche, as Carl Jung did, by studying you know, the way that we project that into the unknown. And so the same thing happens with humans today, you know, in modern times when they encounter the unknown. Now, I think the Sasquatch fits a special category here in that it's not just the unknown. It's also the unknown in the form of a very large and very intimidating animal. And so, you know, we're mammals and we spent most of our evolutionary history being prey. And you're not just talking about the human lineage, but the lineage of primates and then the lineage of all mammals. You know, most of that time that we've been primates, we were small, tree-dwelling, little rodent-sized things that were eaten by snakes and cats and birds. And, you know, there were all sorts of predators plagued us. Even as we became, uh, you know, trending towards anatomically modern humans, there were short-faced bears and cave bears and saber-toothed cats and on and on and on, crocodilians things of that nature. And so, of course, we have these very hardwired, innate, involuntary responses to encountering large and frightening animals. So you have both of those things going on at once when people encounter a Sasquatch. It's something completely unknown, and it's in the form of the large predatory threat, essentially. And then the third thing that's happening is that, you know, we're, we're very... Uh, the, the sort of cognition that we employ, it's, again, I would say involuntary, so it might not even be a cognitive process, but we essentially like to categorize things immediately. And so when you have something like this that defies categorization because it's very manlike, 
you know, it walks upright on two legs and it has sort of a man-like silhouette. It walks like it, talks like it, it's got to be. Uh, we've got a break there. That's what makes it somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. Into the paranormal. Jeremy Scott into the paranormal all across the USA, worldwide, in fact, on the internet for the Audio One Talk Network. Talking with Matt Pruitt, author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch, seeking the natural origins of a cultural icon. We'll get to some questions that are coming in as well. Uh, you can message us through the Facebook group chat if you'd like. You can find that in the Into the Paranormal Facebook group or just click the button on our website at paranormalradio.com. Skype button is there if you want to call in that way or it's 503-506-0396. That's 503-506-0396 in the United States and Canada to join the conversation if you've had a sighting or you have a question about the phenomenon. And we were talking with Matt before the break about how... uh, Whatever it is that we're dealing with here defies all sorts of uh, characterizations, right? Well, certainly. Again, because people usually don't have these animals within their interpretive schema of the natural world. And, you know, most people don't go out into the world in North America and think to themselves like, oh, I might see a Sasquatch today. You know, most of the general public doesn't think about it at all. Or, you know, they, they think it's simply just, again, a cultural icon, some some bit of, uh, you know, there's a mythos around it, and it's a mythological creature, and therefore you could never actually encounter it. And so they're not psychologically prepared for that. And so, again, these, these things occur simultaneously in that you're encountering the unknown that's very uh, novel and surprising. You're encountering a very large, threatening animal, and it defies categorization because it's man-like, and yet it's nothing like a person. And it's covered in hair like an animal, but it's not like any animal you've ever seen. Or it's ape-like, but not like any ape you've ever seen. And so a number of things happen simultaneously, uh, I would say, from the bottom up, which would be physiologically, and the top down. So the bottom up sort of responses would be, first of all, there's uh, tonic immobility, which is the innate or involuntary freezing response to fear. And it's something that's you know hardwired across many mammals. It's in all primates and certainly all apes. And so people will find themselves frozen, stiff, and paralyzed. And then there's this sort of top-down system shock uh, of cognitive shock, of trying to categorize and not understanding what you're seeing. That's what most witnesses profess to, is that they spent those moments completely frozen and thinking to themselves, what is that? What is that? What am I seeing? And then by that time, usually the animal flees. And so very often the psychological factors would be, well, that's such an unusual novel response because you just don't experience that very often. Um, I mean, how often <laughs> would you experience it? You know, we're, we're sort of prepared for most things that we encounter. You know, when we get behind the wheel of a vehicle, we understand the dangers. And so if someone swerves into our lane, of course it's scary. And, you know, it can activate your fight or flight system, but you're prepared for it. You know, it won't leave you in some state of terrible cognitive shock and physiological shock versus, you know, the encounter with the unknown large predatory threat that defies categorization tends to do that. And so very often what you see is that people will attribute what they experience to the animal. 
as if the onus is on the animal. And you will find that not only in belief systems associated with the Sasquatch, but in the aforementioned animals, bears, tigers, and gorillas, that there's a common belief among peoples that these things can paralyze you or incapacitate you with their gaze. And, you know, very often because of the intense fear, it's seen as sort of like a moral punishment. So in indigenous cultures in Siberia associated with the Siberian tiger, uh, in all parts of the world, North America, parts of Asia associated with bears, they're seen as these moral judges who, you know, will strike fear into a person's heart if they're not morally pure. And the same beliefs are associated with the Sasquatch. So these are some of the psychological factors at play. And people still experience those things and interpret them that way today, when in fact it seems to be just an innate human response within the observer. It's just right, that hold that thought. Challenging those uh, assumptions, deepening our understanding of the Bigfoot mystery tonight. We'll continue with Matt Pruitt. Something afoot on Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. is paranormal news. We could be on the brink of a nuclear catastrophe. More than 100 medical journals worldwide are calling the threat great and growing, and that it demands urgent action to eliminate nuclear weapons and educate the public about the impacts. It comes as Russia warns of the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, while North Korea continues to carry out tests and stall efforts towards nonproliferation. The journal says nuclear-armed states must eliminate their nuclear arsenal before they eliminate us. They cite research that shows even a limited nuclear war with 250 of the 13,000 nuclear weapons worldwide would kill 121 million people and cause a global climate disruption with famine that would affect many more. George Henry, Paranormal News. by the data that there certainly is something out there, something out there. At the very least, that it justifies our, our pursuing the question and investigating further. I was just sitting there nervous looking at this thing thinking this is a monster. Seven and a half to eight feet tall, around 600 pounds. Something else is out there. There's something else out there, okay. I saw this, this thing turn around looked at me and it was, it was big. Is there intelligent life out there? Well, they'd probably be listening to this show. You're in good company. Into the Fair of Normal. Something that might have the capability to freeze us in our tracks or at least to impact our psychology in which to do it ourselves, if not uh, forced to do it. Uh, talking with Matt Pruitt. Fascinating conversation we've had so far tonight about the psychological factors at play, uh, which was our conversation right before the break, uh, we discussed, you know, being frozen, almost paralyzed, maybe not with fear, but maybe uh, just with the awe of the spectacle. Uh, so is that an ability by the Sasquatch, or is that just a natural human reaction, you think? I think that's an innate hardwired involuntary response. So, uh, again, in our evolutionary history, especially the, the 
long, you know, millions of years that we spent as these little rodent-sized primates living in trees, the primary predators that those animals faced essentially were snakes, cats, and birds. And those are animals that hunt by motion. So it happened to be that the individuals who froze and didn't move in the presence of those predators survived and passed on their genes. And so that turned that response into a hardwired response. And technically it's called tonic immobility. Now we don't encounter many things that trigger us to become tonically immobile in the animal world any longer, although it, it can and does happen. And in fact, you know, I when I listen to the testimonies of people who've had very frightening grizzly bear encounters, they'll describe the same thing, being frozen, paralyzed, and almost going into a dissociative state. And people describe the same things with these other animals around the world. And, you know, there are other experiences that will generate that response in people. But since we're restricting the conversation to animals, uh, you know, no one would think that grizzly bears have some power, let's say, or some metaphysical source of power that does that to people. Rather, we understand that people involuntarily freeze in those situations as a conserved response to a predatory threat. And so I think that's what's happening in these Sasquatch encounters. It just so happens that the way that it's experienced phenomenologically or, you know, experientially, let's say, is that it leads people to believe that the animal did it to them rather than that it's an innate response within them, within the observer. And so, again, you see that reflected in belief systems associated with bears, tigers, and gorillas, as I lay out in the book, that these animals were uh, commonly believed to have the ability to incapacitate or paralyze or hypnotize a person with their gaze, you know, by looking at them. But now we understand that that's just a response happening within the observer. And so I su suspect that, you know, if Sasquatches are real animals, that's what's going on rather than some supernatural ability. Through our Facebook group chat, Paul says, uh, when someone sees a possible Sasquatch, why do they only take one photo? Well, if they take any photo at all, because again, an animal that does that to you, like I just described, these sort of three sorts of system failures and shutdowns physiologically, cognitively, and psychologically, you know, most people just freeze and they're totally confused. They're going through this cognitive shock. And when you look at the totality of reports and you start to do any sort of statistical analysis, most of these reports only last, or most of these observations rather, only last a few seconds. The animal almost always flees. And so, you know, the person sees the Sasquatch, the Sasquatch sees the person, the person's frozen in fear and confused and the Sasquatch bolts and run away. And so it, it's hardly the sort of thing where you would expect someone to have the wherewithal to whip out a phone or a camera. And so it's usually the case that if there are photos or something like that associated with it, it's of the thing fleeing. At least that's what's being claimed. Now, because we don't know, we as a society don't know that these things exist, we can't positively say that any of those photos are of living Sasquatches. But I suspect that if they are, well, there's a very good reason that people aren't getting very many photographs of them. Very few people are looking for them, and many of the people who are looking for them aren't even trying to document them visually in a way that they're you know, prepared with high-quality cameras where they might capture some very good photos. So, yeah, most of the photos are blurry because the camera operator's moving and the animal's moving, but you know, most encounters do not result in any kind of photographic evidence whatsoever. What do you make of the claims that people say, well, I sat there and I took a whole bunch of po pictures. I was snapping away, but none of them turned out. I've never encountered anyone who made that claim to me, and I've interviewed 
probably over 2,000 witnesses at this point. So some of, there's these sort of myths that get uh, promulgated and perpetuated around, and so that might be one of them. You know, you hear this these myths very often, or stories about, you know, oh, I did take a lot of photos, but I'm waiting for the right time to release them. You know, I've heard many claims of, like, hidden evidence that's supposedly groundbreaking, but, oh, I can't show anyone yet. And so it's like, well, that might as well not even exist, or... If someone says, well, I have a lot of photographs, but the Sasquatch didn't appear in any of them, well, the event probably didn't happen. You know what I mean? So that, to me, would be the, the most likely solution for something like that of those claims. Okay. Uh, boy, you don't give the the, the, the Sasquatch uh, much, I'm joking, Matt, uh, credit for uh, seemingly being able to, like, uh, influence uh, its surroundings. Why do are there any other mammals that influence their surroundings in such a way? No, not that we know of. That's what I. That's indeed, and so I would say that. Well, there are many animals that that we interpret as based on on the thought that this is strictly you know an animal. Well, there's many animals that we attributed these exact same supernatural abilities to. And again, in the book, I lay out three key ones because there's so many associated with them that are exactly the same abilities that are associated with the Sasquatch to a T. And I lay that out and say, well, we no longer believe that gorillas, bears, or tigers are mediators between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Now, you can change the nomenclature into something more modern and say interdimensional, but it's the same idea, or that they can materialize or dematerialize or know the content of a person's mind or heart. So why should we assume that the Sasquatch is the last holdout of metaphysical abilities in the animal kingdom when it's likely that the same psychological factors are at play and that one day we'll discover that they're just perfectly normal biological animals. Okay. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, why not shoot one of these beings? Uh, why not disable it with bear spray? Uh, why not do any of those things? Well, I do think it's not even what I think. I mean, obviously, the institutions have made it clear that a specimen will be required. And so certainly, you know, other animals are collected, specimens are collected via lethal means. And so to this day, you know, it's not just in the Victorian area, but even to this day, people collect specimens and and identify new species or study living species by dispatching living individuals with lethal means, i.e. shooting them. And so that will have to happen likely at some point in time unless we, you know, collect enough cumulative visual evidence and or potentially recover the remains of a recently deceased individual or something that you know died of natural causes etc um so i know that that's what science let's say uh requires and i didn't make the rules but those are the rules and so i'm not necessarily opposed to that so long as it were done as ethically and you know as morally soundly as possible but the fact of the matter is almost no one has ever attempted to do that. And in fact, there's only really been one effort that's attempted to do that. And it's only been within the last decade. And even within that, there's barely been any opportunities to do so. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that most people who are pursuing it are trying to answer the question to their own satisfaction. They're trying to make a personal discovery. And so they're not trying to dispatch a living individual. And most of the time, they're not even trying to document these things. They're just trying to see one for themselves or, you know, trying to, to have an experience that would confirm 
to them to answer the fundamental question on their own level. So the number of people really pursuing the kind of proof that would rise to the institutional standards are extremely few and far between. But but no, I, I, I do recognize the necessity of a specimen for sure. Or they're just caught off guard. You know, they, they didn't go there with any sort of preconceived notion. Maybe they're just camping or something, and they just have an encounter, and it's unexpected. Uh, is it possible that there is actually no physical evidence of a Sasquatch and that this could only exist, stay, say, uh, in stories and in art, folklore, that type of thing? Well, to paraphrase, you know, one of the luminaries of Sasquatch research, John Green, I mean, that is sort of the, the question is like, OK, well, let's even if we set the stories aside, you know, the testimonial claims, the narratives, if we just looked at one category of evidence being the footprint evidence, which, again, is the most abundant. I mean, there have been thousands of tracks reported, many hundreds of tracks photographed and a few hundred tracks that have been cast. So we have like the physical representations of these. Either an animal with a foot shaped like that left some of those tracks. You know, if these things are real, then some of those tracks were left by them. Or if no such animal exists, then all of the tracks are fake. Because they're clearly not bear tracks or moose tracks or elk tracks or anything of that nature. So it, it, there's no intermediary form. And so you'd have to look at that preponderance of evidence and th think to yourself, well, could all of this possibly be fabricated by humans? And the same with the stories, you know, the claims or other categories of evidence, multimedia evidence, photos, videos, audio recordings, et cetera. And so I think, yeah, to, to say that, you know, if they're real, some of those are associated with them is more likely than every single claim and every single bit of evidence mm -hmm. has been fabricated. What excites me, Matt, is uh, the environmental DNA work that is going on. That's something that, you know, we didn't have before and perhaps that may be what it takes to solve this one way or another oh certainly you know if the technology exists to sequence a full genome from something that's found in an environmental sample then that could do it now the problem is if you're only looking at fragments or portions of a sequence because these things are you know related to other animals you know for example if they are part of that asian ape line uh, Gigantopithecus, for example, the same ape line that Gigantopithecus was a part of, well, the closest living relative to Gigantopithecus was the orangutan. They split from a common ancestor about 10 to 12 million years ago. We share about 97% of our DNA with orangutans. When you move towards chimpanzees, it's nearly 99%. And so if you only had fragments of the DNA of those animals or their close relatives, then most of what you find will be shared by humans. And that's been the case with most samples is that they run preliminary tests or let's say like superficial or, or you know, they're looking at shorter fragments and they're going, well, this is completely uh, similar or shared or it, in some cases the fragments are indistinguishable from humans. And so they just assume the sample came from a human. So even if Sasquatches are real and they're in these environments, you would have to have enough cells which if I'm understanding it correctly, the technology exists now to uh, sequence a full genome from as few as three cells. But you could do that from you know, a soil sample or water sample if it were very fresh and from which you could sequence the entire genome and see those small differentiating differences, whether it's 1% different than us or 3% or whatever the case may be. And that might constitute proof 
I think even if that happened, there would probably still be a desire for a specimen, uh, you know, and there'd still be the desire to collect images and photographs and videos and things of that nature. And so there'd still be a pursuit beyond that. But it would be amazing if the species could be validated to exist via eDNA. And that's something I'm hopeful for as well. Matt, what would your parting words be to the audience tonight? Well, I very much appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. I know you've got a great audience out there, and obviously they're very open-minded. And so uh, thanks for being here, and thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about the subject, you can find the Phenomenal Sasquatch on Amazon. And uh, give a shout-out to uh, Cliff and Bobo. I produced the podcast Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo, and that's a lot of fun. So if you like listening to squatchy stuff, give that a listen. Wherever you get your podcasts, as they say, right? Absolutely. Appreciate it. Uh, that's Matt Pruitt. He is the author of The Phenomenal Sasquatch, Seeking the Natural Origins of a Cultural Icon. He's also a member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Fascinating subject that we are just getting, well, underway with. Lots more to come this week. We'll tell you about that when we come back. I'm Jeremy Scott. Into the Paranormal. Into the Paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between abnormal and paranormal. You know, we have to really thank those who have come before us, those who have done the research in this field. Matt is one of them, one of many who have dedicated many, many years of their life to the pursuit of an elusive animal, beast, Whatever it ha- whatever terminology you want to use. And two of those great men have actually left the field recently. I'd like to pay some respects to them at this time. Peter Byrne, who helped uh, really build the foundation for the research that is going on today. He died here in Oregon in late July. Very, very sad to hear about that. Peter Byrne was... 97, so he was uh, involved in the early, early days of Bigfoot research. Sad story as well out of Tennessee, where Scott Carpenter, a researcher who was popular on YouTube for his theories on Bigfoot, died unexpectedly this week, actually, 59 years old. Uh, Those men contributed actually quite a lot to Bigfoot research, and we owe them a lot, and Send condolences to their families. Scott Violet joining me here. He's with the Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest and Squatch, Oregon. Sad to hear about the passing of both those men, Scott, who gave an awful lot to the field. Oh, yeah, I am, too. Yeah, Peter Byrne was one of the originals. Um, you know, they, they, they had the four horsemen, and he was one of the four original horsemen of the Bigfoot research. And now they're all gone. Now that, yeah, he was the last. Yeah. Well, uh, you have gathered Bigfoot enthusiasts to the little tiny town of Baker City, Oregon, which was once the capital of the state, if I have that correct. And you're going to hold a Bigfoot Fest this weekend. Is that correct? 
That is true, and that is also true. And a lot of people don't know that Baker City actually was the uh, original capital of Oregon. Many, many moons ago, right? Yeah, and it didn't last long, too, either. But we do have a governor's match, and still it's a funeral parlor now, but uh, it's still there. And what, there's a history of uh, Bigfoot sightings in them Blue Mountains? Oh, absolutely. There's a long history of Bigfoot sightings here in the Blue Mountains. Um, it's uh, one of the hot spots in Oregon, actually. Uh, it goes back, especially in the in the '90s, when Paul Freeman was doing his research, when and several others, uh, right here in this area, in the Blues. And what Paul Freeman's son is coming to the Blue Mountain Bigfoot Fest this weekend in Baker City? He actually is, yeah. And he just wrote a book about all his father's research. And um, if you want to join us on Friday night, August 11th at 6 p.m. at the Elks Lodge. Uh, in Baker City, uh, he's going to be doing a talk on his father and his book and history, and he's got a um, new take on his father in the in the early '90s. Got a video of a Bigfoot, but it was done on an old, uh, you know, VHS style video camera, and uh, they just recently have the technology to. Um, bring that up to 4k and now we're being able to see things we never saw before in that video and he'll be showing that um on friday night amazing uh, who else is coming in for this um and, and another bigfoot um legend actually i'd have to say todd niece he's been in the game for a very long time uh ex-military guy uh and little known fact uh todd was uh, really good friends with Peter Byrne, and actually he he spent a lot of time out in the woods with Peter Byrne. Peter Byrne was kind of taught Todd uh, basically everything he knew about Bigfooting, and and Todd actually has a lot of Peter's old stuff that he had, his old hat that he used to wear, and, and those logos that he had on his truck, uh, they've been passed on to Todd, so uh, Todd's going to be talking a little bit about that too. All right, so where do we go to be a part of this all? Uh, you can go to SquatchAmerica.com, and you can click the links on the front of the page there, and you can get all the information, and you can buy your tickets for the festival or for the dinner. The festival is free on uh, Saturday, the twelfth. Uh, it starts at ten o'clock, but um, that's all free. But the dinner is is paid. Uh, it's a VIP dinner. It's where you get to hear these guys talk, and you get to ask them questions later. And you can go to SquatchAmerica.com. And I'll be and there with you, friends. <laughs> yes, you will. Live broadcast yes. in the uh, town hall on Saturday. Uh, we've got details on our Facebook page. And again, SquatchAmerica.com. I've got my bags packed. I'll see you then, Scott. All right. See you.